The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It speaks so directly to good that we take in. All right? And so, um, as you probably know, in Buddhism, there are three fundamental refuges. These are the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, or the teacher, the teaching, and the community of the taught. It's also okay to have other refuges. Maybe reason is a refuge for you, or the memory of your grandmother's cookies, or a pet, or trees. I get happy if I'm under trees, or your partner, or God, or practice, or awareness, or emptiness. They can all be refuges, and I'm naming some of my own. So with regard to refuge, uh, often it's phrased as, I go to refuge, or I take refuge, as if it's over there and we're separated from it. There's a place for that. But what about abiding as the refuge? Abiding as Buddha Dharma Sangha, abiding as awareness, or emptiness, or practice, or reason, or kindness, and as a present and felt reality. That's also a very deep way to enter refuge, to find refuge, to abide as refuge. So I just wanted to offer that as a practice that's been very personally useful. Okay? I propose that we mostly go experiential for the remainder of the day, and I will end punctually at 4.30. And my request is, unless you really, really, really need to, please stay here till 4.30. Okay? Because it's it's unnerving. Little Ricky inside. <laughs> People start getting up. I think, oh my God, I really suck. You know, so, and for other reasons as well. If you can stay to the end, I'd appreciate it. That's a request. Okay, so let's do some practices. And what I'm going to do is to move through some particularly staged practices uh, and use this as a time mainly to do practices with a, with a few breaks for 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 discussion, okay? So we recall how to take in the good, right? And I'll walk us through it. So this will be sort of a long guided practice for the next hour or so with lots of changes and some discussion, all right? So what are some kinds of good to take in? I think it's kind of funny that I made this list. We need a list like this, but I needed a list like this. So now, you'll probably notice that I've organized this list of kinds of good to take in according to those three fundamental motivational systems. So, as, as a little bit of a quiz, the, the first three kinds of good to take, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is as much as I could fit into one slide with small print without driving you crazy. Okay? So the first three have to do with which of the three systems, avoiding, attaching, or approaching. Approaching, yes, approaching the positive, approaching rewards, the pleasant, and so forth. The second has to do with which of the three systems? Avoiding. Avoiding. Great. Which leaves the third, attaching, right? And then the the last two are sort of nonspecific. Okay, great. So just take a moment to take a peek at those those, uh, goods to take in. And if you like, reflect a little bit about what your own particular needs are, all right? Because we're going to move into the fourth step of taking in the good, which is working with antidote experiences, 
or working with positive experiences in general and bringing them into connection with and gradually infusing old uh, painful uh, lacks or wounds. So it's worth kind of looking up there. Does anything pop out for you? Like when I look up there, uh, I just kind of go right there to the uh, attaching system is sort of where my, my trick knees are, you know, my weak spots are. But other people, you know, they move to other systems um, as really where the action is these days. It's interesting that the Buddha put probably the majority of his emphasis in practice on dealing with the avoiding system, the one in the middle. And I think that's because it's so primary. And it's that inner iguana just hijacks us so fast. So he put a lot of emphasis. If you think about wise intention, okay, the second, right intention, um, well, there are three elements that constitute uh, right intention in the Noble Eightfold Path, okay? Uh, one is uh, renunciation, then the intention for re- releasing basically desire for rewards. That goes to the approaching system. But the second one is non-harming, the intention for non-harming, very often driven by the avoiding system. And the third intention is the intention of non-ill will. So two out of three of the wise intentions, more or less, have to do with the avoiding system. Isn't that interesting, the emphasis there? That's just an illustration, I think, of the power of the avoiding system and the importance of paying attention to it. Okay? So these are these different systems. I want to say a word. So now we're going to do a bit of a practice here on taking in self-compassion. It's interesting if you'll see a quote, yes, from Pema Chodron here, that she says, you know, the root of Buddhism is compassion, and the root of compassion is compassion for oneself. Self-compassion is a very hot and major area of research today. Many of the results or benefits of self-esteem have been discovered to boil down to self-compassion. And arguably, self-compassion is more powerful in terms of many aspects of mental health than self-esteem, a lot because it's emotional. It's emotional. All right? But self-compassion is hard for people. So there's some neurological tricks for activating self-compassion that I'll take you through right now, and then we'll use self-compassion or the experience of compassion for yourself as a good to take in. Okay, you up for this practice? Okay. So, and this also goes to some extent to mending the whole, to mending the heart. All right. So the first step is, get a, you can, and it's good to do these with the eyes open. You can do it with eyes closed if you like. It's nice to do these practices with eyes open because that's very often when we're going to want to take in the good. But if it's easier to get you know, this right uh, today, feel very free to close your eyes. Okay. So bring to mind the felt sense of being with someone that you know cares about you. So you might simply think of someone like a friend, it could be a pet, a lover, a mate, a parent, a sib, a spiritual being, who you know really cares about you. It's very natural for other feelings to arise, including not being cared about, being rejected or abandoned. It's it's almost a concentration practice. Go back, if you can, to the experience of being cared about. And have that then be the first step, in effect, of taking in the good. You're taking in the felt sense of being cared about. 
it sometimes helps to put your hand on your heart or your hand on your cheek to, in an embodied cognition way, really um, fuel the feeling of being cared for. And meanwhile, in the second and third steps, really sink into this experience of being cared about while sensing and intending that it's sinking into you. You might feel your heart softening. Feelings filling all of you of being cared about. Good. Next, while, if you like, continuing to feel cared about, bring to mind someone that you naturally have caring for, including compassion for. In other words, you wish them well, you wish that they not suffer. And again, we'll take in the good here. So first step, bring to mind things that help you get in touch with the experience of having compassion for someone, someone easy for you, like a child or a your friend, a wounded animal, a cat, a dog, in pain. And then in the second and the third step, sink in to the experience of compassion for others while feeling that that compassion is sinking into you. Maybe combined with verbal thoughts in your mind like, may you not suffer. May your pain fade. May you be truly happy. Okay, and then the next step is to shift to yourself, perhaps a young version of you, maybe get a picture of yourself as a sweet little kid, not perfect, but a sweet, innocent, vulnerable little kid, or a sense of your innermost being, and see if you can then simply apply the experience of compassion that's been very alive for you and your body, applying that experience of compassion to yourself. Maybe combined with phrases in your mind like, may I not suffer? May this pain go away. May this loneliness end. May this anger fade. 
And then second and third step, being mindful of the experience of self-compassion, which means you're wishing yourself well, you're not pitying yourself, but it's a very simple recognition. Like, ow, that hurts. Ooh, I wish I didn't feel this. Ah, I wish I felt better. And sink into that experience and let it sink into you. Okay. So, any comments or questions about self-compassion? Yeah. I wondered about I wondered about neg- um, naming the negative emotion. Isn't that like attracting it? Okay. So the question is, is like, so naming the negative emotion like... Oh, I, I um, take the sadness or right. anger. It, it does initially surface it. So I think of it as a raft. So if we name it, we surface it, yes. It's also true that studies have shown in a way that's pretty neat, actually, that just labeling negative emotions uh, activates the right prefrontal cortex some, and it calms down the amygdala, which is the alarm bell of the brain. Just the noting practice, sorrow, anger, more sorrow, thoughts about wanting sorrow to go, (laughs) just that noting actually helps downregulate this uh, alarm bell in the brain that is the trigger of the fight-or-flight stress response system. The trick is to um, have growing attentional control so that one is not sucked into uh, the old pain. So experiencing emotionally the pain again reinforces it? Okay. um, That gets to the discussion of mindfulness versus wise effort or in partnership with wise effort in those three phases. And you, you can see why I did that whole shtick on the three phases because it really is involved in many good questions. Um, technically, fleeting negative experiences, particularly if they're fairly mild, you're going to get a momentary activation. You're not going to build much structure. But if we routine, if we have an acute, intensely negative experience, you can get, bam, a lifetime memory right there, right? Like, can't, I don't know about you, I can remember a handful of particularly acutely upsetting, uh, uncomfortable experiences as a kid, which for me were a million miles away from abuse, but were still real unpleasant. And I can remember them like that, because, bam, that trace goes in. Because Mother Nature wants us to remember. Once burned, twice shy. Always remember what the stove feels like, you know? Uh, so the... And on the other hand, dwelling on you know mildly negative experiences, but again and again and again, that's going to start building neural structure. Honestly, to me, it's one more lap in hell. And every time we run around the track, you know, we deepen the grooves. So that's why I think I'm, I'm you know, neurologically um, trained makes me increasingly 
thoughtful about mindfulness and negative emotion. And the importance that if we're going to feel it, and we need to, we need to do the first phase. We need to honor the first phase, okay? Then what's really good is to hold that negative emotion, that, um, uh, table, that spoonful of salt, in a big space of mindfulness. Ideally infused with positive affect, like positive self-compassion, like goodwill for ourselves, and the felt sense of being with others who care about us. Again, it's the whole of the holy life. You know, to bear, to deal with um, the pain inside our head, we need a sangha inside our head. You know, we need the felt sense inside ourselves of the internalization of uh, good relations with others. For me as well, lately, especially when I began to realize the the importance, the primacy of the social brain, increasingly now when when I'm working with material in my head or helping myself around something, um, I'll often deliberately really focus on bring, building up that sense of being connected with others. I'll just remind myself of my friends, my family, or people. It's not million-dollar moments, but it just brings up a felt sense of connection and being cared about by imperfect others who care imperfectly. You know? Okay, great. Uh, one more person, and then we'll do the fourth step of taking into good. Anybody else? Yeah, right there. Great. We can leave the mics on, too. Yeah. So for someone who's working with a really strong, uh, say, negative emotion, would bringing up uh, a practice of metta be useful in that way of supporting that so that it nourishes that um, caring, uh, concerned part so that it quiets down the... Uh, avoid and the, uh, mm-hmm. that reactivity? Yeah, I think that is, is true. And that's where, for example, and I think that's one reason why traditionally, like for example, one of the hindrances you know, is hatred, broadly defined, right? Anger, um, let's include things like fear there. Or uh, you know, envy, which is a really underrated emotion, but a powerful one, envy, okay? Uh, and so... My recollection around that is that a traditional uh, antidote for hatred is loving-kindness, is metta, is wishing well, wishing that you be happy. Uh, It's also the fact that when we do that, we automatically tend to pull up a lot of positive associations in implicit memory outside the waterline, which then allows me to address a question that got raised earlier by Andre, right? Um, Think of awareness as like a stage, and... Uh, what's what we're particularly attentive to is under the spotlight, but the re- and the rest of the stage is dimly lit, but we're aware of it. Okay, and then there's what's in the wings, either temporarily or forever in the wings. That that's kind of a metaphor for awareness. What happens with mindfulness is two things. Number one, we broaden the spotlight, we open it out, and we become more capable of of having a spotlight that lights the whole stage. So we're more aware of more stuff all at once. Right? The second thing is the stage broadens. And stuff that was pre- previously behind those drapes you know, on the side gets brought onto the stage. And we're becoming increasingly aware, uh, not just moment to moment, uh, but more broadly aware of all of the contents, of more of the contents of mind. And that's a very, very good practice. So now if we could, 
going to the next step, let's talk about the um, the fourth step of taking in the good. But before doing that, I just want to you know have this quote, which is a really nice one. It it arises naturally; it hasn't yet publicly, but I I suspect it's arisen in at least one mind in the room, uh, besides my own. Uh, the question as to whether taking in the good, or as, as that gentleman kind of got at, is this selfish? You know. Well, yeah, it could be selfish if that were the intent, but generally speaking, so first of all, it's okay to feel good, right? It's a victimless crime, right? I mean, you're not hurting anyone to feel good. Feeling good is good, right? We like feeling good. Additionally, in all kinds of ways, some of which I've described, feeling good is skillful means. For one, it promotes steadiness of mind. For another, it's motivating. For another, it'll keep, us, keep you alive longer. So you have more years of practice. These are good things. Additionally, it's very good for our relations with others to feel good ourselves. You know, as Bertrand Russell says, good people are happy people because happy people are good people. Much research has shown that on the average, with some notable exceptions, generally speaking, when people feel more that their own cup runneth over, they're more willing to share with other people. It's when they feel upset or mistreated or deprived themselves that they tend to be most focused on kind of immediate survival needs. You know, they're, they're feeding the, the beast inside the head. The inner iguana, you know, is hungry. Right? So the better we feel ourselves, the more inclined we are to be pro-social toward others. Okay? So that, that can help motivate you to take in the good as a really good practice. All right. So now, the fourth step of taking in the good. This is where it gets really interesting. The way memory works is this, including implicit emotional memory. It's not like in a computer. For example, if you're in your computer and you, you have a little tiny JPEG of your sunset and, uh, you know, whatever, Pacific sunset, uh, and you want to see the whole picture, you click the button and whoop, the whole picture shows up on your screen. Every single pixel in that on your monitor maps to a pixel or some data point of memory. That's how a computer does it. The brain doesn't do it like that. It just stores a tiny fraction of the data in an experience and the schematic features uh, in memory. And then when it's time to recall something, it rebuilds it from scratch. And then when it, you're not thinking about it anymore, it actually reconsolidates it. It restores it. Okay? It has to restore it. It doesn't just because it has to put the trace back in. That's how the brain works. It does it so fast that we don't notice it. You know, these, these neurons are firing 5 to 50 times a second. It just, boom, there it is in your inner screen, right? But no, it gets built, okay? This creates a very powerful opportunity because during the period of time when the memory trace, including implicit memory for feeling bad or feeling unloved or heartached or brokenhearted or mistreated or cast out or all the rest of that, when those memory traces are reconsolidated, they're vulnerable to intervention. If you interrupt Pro- certain kinds of protein synthesis that are involved in reconsolidation, you can erase memories. For example, if you take rats and you train them that down the right-hand uh, channel or pathway is electrical shock and down the left-hand path is cheese, and then you train them that way, so now they know, don't go right, go left. You know, That's not a political comment. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so well and good, but if after you expose them to the right-hand pathway that has electrical shock and they come out, and then you zap, give them a little, not an electrical shock, you inject them with uh, a drug that interrupts protein synthesis, they'll forget that the right-hand pathway has electrical shock. 
So this is actually a major area of investigation for people with PTSD. How in the world to erase, in effect, traumatic memories. Uh, one of the major figures, Joseph Ledoux, who invented, has done a lot of research on this, um, uh, at these aspects of memory consolidation and so forth, actually got an email from somebody who said, please, please, can you help me forget my ex-wife? <laughs> All right? But no, it doesn't work like that, including the fact that the drugs that work on rats are really pretty toxic. But you can do other things as well that affect this reconsolidation in implicit memory of painful residues, because that's what we're now talking about. We're talking about the holes in our heart. We're talking about areas of lack or wound, and they often go together. All right? If, as it says up here, you associate prominently in working memory, in other words, on the stage, under the spotlight, in the focal field of awareness, okay? if you associate positive material with a dim sense in the background, kind of on the edges of the stage, of that old, negative, painful stuff, gradually then, when that old stuff goes back down the rabbit hole, it will take with it some of those positive associations. And some of those positive associations will infuse it. It will be imbued with them as it gets reconsolidated. Any single time you do that usually will not be transformational. Once in a while, I think a lot of us have had an experience where we just got something and that forever liberated us from some experience we had as a kid. You know? But generally speaking, it's a slow accumulation combined with breakthroughs. I love the traditional saying, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Some, you know, we get an awakening and then we cultivate that awakening. Or we cultivate, which then gives us an awakening. You know, we cultivate quantitative growth, boom, which leads to a qualitative awakening. Then we cultivate more quantitative growth, qualitative awakening. See, it's like that. All right? But there's a lot of breakthroughs that are the hard-won result of incremental accumulation. So let's do a practice with this right now. Okay? This is my favorite personal growth technique, and I know a lot of them. I think it's definitely tied for first place, this fourth step of taking in the good. So the way it happens a lot in life is we start with a good experience, like with my analogy of my whole and my heart, and then we take it in, we bring it into contact with um, old places of pain. It's also the case that sometimes, uh, going to the example that she spoke of a moment ago, that we start with something painful and then we deliberately bring in something positive. I think it's important when we bring in something deliberately positive that we don't skip over the first phase of really being with and really staying with what's there. You know, that we don't get caught up in the pitfall of becoming like you know, little fix-its right, inside our head. Right? Okay. So, but because we're doing this kind of artificially here, uh, why don't we start with bringing to awareness something that you know is an area of lack or heartache or frustration uh, or fear. So the three main systems, right? Uh, in terms of the avoiding system, an area, let's say, of fear, where you feel threatened or worried or concerned. Or alternately, in the approaching system, some area of frustration or disappointment. Or in the attaching system, some area of heartache or narcissistic injury, in a sense of not getting the kind of recognition or attunement you really needed and deserve. So identify, without getting sucked into it, 
a hole in your heart. And that's how I'll speak about it. To be able to do this practice, you have to be able to do two things. You have to be able to hold two things in awareness at once, which we often do in mindfulness practices. You know, we have a grounded sense of attention to the breath while being simultaneously spaciously aware of other things flowing through awareness. That's divided attention. Little kids can't do a divided attention. But, you know, from about four or five on, kids can do the fourth step of taking in the good. So we have to be able to divide attention. Second, most importantly, we have to not get hijacked by the old pain. If you're getting sucked back into that hole in the heart, stop. Right? Just drop it, stop thinking about it, remarinate in the positive experience, and then try again. Okay? So you want to, to do this, you want to be aware of um, one, a hole in your heart, and two, what experience would be an antidote to that particular hole in your heart? Sometimes this is obvious to people, sometimes it's not. Why don't I take a few questions really fast about what would be possible antidote experiences? Yeah. That's a great question. Ideally, it would be a real antidote because um, I, I'm, I think the ignorance is the ultimate source you know, of suffering. That said, um, as far as the brain is concerned, particularly down deep, it doesn't know particularly whether it comes from a real source or not. For example, imagery rehearsal can have all, all, pretty much about as much effect on the brain as actually doing the thing itself, like skiing or playing the piano. Uh, one study showed that people who imagined playing a particularly difficult piano piece that involves certain finger motions got as much build-out of neural structure as, as trained pianists, uh, they were both trained pianists, who actually played the piece 10 minutes or so a day. So it, you know, there's a place for that. What I find often works is, so let's suppose what I really wanted when I was a kid was more capacity from my mother to really see me rather than some guy that was about three inches to the right of my head, okay? Or the, you know, the popular kids in school to really be drawn into the head table, you know, where the cool kids were. All right, I'm way, my mom's dead, I'm 57, you're all pretty cool, but it's, it's a really different dynamic than junior high, right? And so what do I do? Well, I look for other forms that are kind of close approximations to the the nutrients that I really needed to feed my heart when I was little. So you do the best you can. Okay. Are there questions about antidote experiences? Identifying your antidotes is really useful because you know why? You can go looking for them and, in fact, create them. Right? Like when I began to realize, holy moly, I had a lot of narcissistic injury, and that's a psych term. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I need to look for those supplies. Okay. Can it be something that you already know about, but you just feel like you need a lot more bricks? I mean, doesn't, yeah. does it have to be new, or can it That's be known? Correct. It doesn't have to be new. In fact, if you know it, it's great, and then it's a go-to. Okay? Other people? And if you're willing to share, like, if you don't get what would be an antidote experience, it's, you ought to raise your hand, or make sure you get it. Yeah. Could, are you willing just to say, or name an example, hold the heart, or lack? I'm just wondering, in terms of what you had said, yeah. what would it been an antidote for me personally right. oh feeling like i was getting what i didn't get then that's a great antidote experience what did, what did, what what did you want 
What would have made it right? Okay? That's the antidote experience, or it's a good antidote, which for me was being uh, included and valued by other people. Uh, So I'll, I'll use a few examples. Let's suppose a person is grappling, let's say, with something that is frightening to them. They feel alarmed. And yes, certainly we should deal with whatever is out there. Remember three domains of intervention? Deal with whatever is out there as best we can that's alarming. All right? But an antidote experience for feeling alarmed or outgunned by life is the experience of strength or a felt sense of being safe or um, protected, including by others. It's kind of it's powerful to bring in the other systems including the approach system, or or the attaching system especially, that others are with us and care about us. That would be an antidote. Or, for example, let's suppose there's a sense of frustration about an important, something you want in life, you haven't gotten it. Well, then there's a sense of loss or lack. So antidote experiences there could be around gratitude or a sense of just being already awash in, in fullness. And it's in the context of being already so fed that, you know, it is true, I, I really, really, really want a cupcake. You know, and I'm not trying to, you know, denigrate what I'm talking about here. You see, these are different examples. Okay, anybody else? Antidote experience, yeah? Can you use the microphone, please? Okay, so you think you're worthless or bad or evil. Oh, good? Okay. I don't mean, oh, good, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, oh, good, you feel worthless or bad, no. Well, I'm with you. You know, we're kind of tight. I, I can relate. Um, so there you are around. Yeah. So the antidotes there would be feeling of worth. For example, feeling appreciated or recognizing a contribution that one has made or that one has good intentions. That's a good one, especially because often the critic gets going about the actual results, but the critic cannot doubt the good intentions. Okay. Yeah, one more. Last one. I'm guessing, that are- guessing that there are certain antidotes that you would uh, best stay away from, like the love and attention of a specific person, for example. Um, some, this is where the skillfulness comes in. You know, certain antidote experiences might uh, drive craving, okay? And we want to be careful about that. And if, for example, I'll answer the question this way, because I think I get what you're saying. Let's suppose that the truth is we want someone to love us more, right? Or want us more, or care about us more, or be better to us. And it's, it's tricky. It's difficult, right? What do we do? That's, there's heartache there. Uh, I think falsifying what is true is wrong dharma and bad psychology. So we don't want to make up a fantasy that they care about us when they really don't, or we don't want to lie about it to ourselves. That doesn't work. But what can work is to bring to mind the felt sense of the being behind the eyes in the other person, or the heart, which could be way back in that other person that really does care about us, or cares about us in these ways. You know, that may well be obscured by the typical mind stuff, anger, fear, 
trip, you know, their own chat, you know, inside their head, their own chitch. Uh, but behind the latticework and the vines and tangles and proliferation, the papancha, you know, of their personality, behind that is a warm fire, you know, that's, that's coming your way. I did that with family members who had difficult personalities. And I was so irritated by the vines and latticework and the uh, brambles and thorns. But after a while, I just realized for my own sake, being on my own side, self-compassion, recognize how that helped others too, I realized it served me to presume and then sense and discern actually, you know, the love for me that was always there. Or whatever might be true about that. And that's true for lots of things. You know, the truth is, um, we're all messed up. <laughs> you know, you know. I don't know, if, how many of you ever did the S training like a long time ago? Am I the only person? Okay, at least there are two of us. Well, one of the, so I'm going to use the loaded word. I hope it's okay for the recording. But one of the things they do in the S training way back in the day, which it, I thought was just a very powerful and good thing I did, um, is you kind of get early on that you're an asshole. Everyone's an asshole. So my wife and I, who are both S graduates, were sitting at dinner where our kids were about 12 and 9 or 15 and 12 or something. And we just got riffing on this because we were pretty loose with our kids. They're pretty cool. Um, we were like, yeah, everybody's an asshole. Like, you're an asshole, Jan. Like, they're... What? <laughs> and we said, like, I know I'm an asshole. Like, you're, for, you're an asshole. And he goes, yeah, his sister goes, yeah, he is an asshole. <laughs> but anyway, it just becomes much more mellow, you know. It's just like, okay, we're all kind of messed up. The mind is messed up. You know, inner monkey, inner iguana, I hope that's pretty clear. I mean, it's a wonder that we can walk and talk, chew gum, and meditate, right, without blowing each other up. Uh, so that said, others are like that too. You know, one of the things that's very liberating for oneself is to just reflect on the 10,000 causes streaming through the minds of other people that are making them act like jerks, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. Or, you know, mostly we're just in the way of their bad day. And as we have more sense of just the mechanicalness and the complexityness of all that just streaming through the head of other people, we don't get so affected by it. And we're increasingly able to see past it to, you know, what's the natural condition in them too. We're not the only people whose natural state is calm, caring, contented, and creative. Their natural state, which is always already the case, is just obscured, is bodhicitta. You know, the heart of the Buddha is this loving kindness, is a natural presence. And it really helps sometimes to just presume it in others and almost talk to it. I'll say this quickly, then we'll do a practice. It reminds me of Ramdas, who was talking about when he was doing radio stuff in New York in the 80s, you know, when people would call up on an LSD trip, right? Or the 70s or the 60s. Yo, man, my grandmother's crawling at my leg with a knife in her teeth. What should I do? And he'd say, can I talk to the person who dialed a 10-digit phone number? <laughs> you know, in other words, behind all that nuttiness is good stuff. You know, we want to presume it. We want to activate it. We want to speak to it. We want to try not to be so triggered by it. You know, to me, that's good practice. And that's good, again, good stuff to take in. Okay. All right, so let's try this now. So... Bring to mind, if you could, the antidote experience. And even if you're not crystal clear about it, it's okay. You know, something that for you is, is, is reliable. You can take refuge in this experience. 
Maybe it's to use these three systems. Maybe it's a strong sense of feeling safe and strong. Or maybe it's something related to a, a strong sense of feeling fulfilled, contented, already fed and satisfied in terms of the approaching system. Or maybe it's a, simply a strong sense, a non-specific sense of being included and cared about and, and even loved. Or maybe your antidote is more specific. So do the first step of taking in the good and tap that button on the jukebox and play that song. And then second and third step, really sink into that experience as it sinks into you. And then experimenting with the fourth step, get a sense that this positive experience is going down into and making contact with and gradually infusing old places of lack or wound. Those old places are sort of dim and in the background of awareness, sometimes there's just simply a knowing that this positive experience is sinking down. Focus mainly on the positive experience. might imagine or visualize the positive experience as like a warm and soothing syrup, a, a golden balm, soothing those abraded, bruised, and hurt places inside. Or going down into that little kid inside each one of us and giving that little kid what she or he has always needed. Then let the old pain go and just dwell on the positive experience. Reestablish yourself in it.
And then again, sense that the positive experience is making contact with, going down into, soothing, filling, even replacing, old places of lack or pain. And then again, letting go of that old pain, only focusing on the positive experience. Okay, great. So, come back. As I said, what we did right here was a kind of very structured way of doing something that often happens on the fly. You know, when you know those old places inside you, Something good happens, you feel good, you let it make contact with that old place, and you know it happens sort of in the flow of life. You move through the steps quickly, but you do it deliberately. You know, in your really self-directed neuroplasticity, you are helping those neurons start stitching together brick by brick, you know, stitch by stitch. Does anyone have any questions about how to do the method? You, yeah, please, the mic, I guess. I noticed that, um, I noticed that um, the negative seems to be louder and um, this exercise feels a little challenging because the negative is so raw. And although I have seen a lessening of the negativity and the sorrow, it's pretty, pretty big and the positive is new and not so big yes so i have a sense i have a um, i i notice that i almost want to pull away from being in the exercise i'm very glad you said that i i think a way to do it would be particularly now when you're training to do this pick positives that are solid go-to's you know that are big and reliable for you, and old places of pain that are maybe not too raw or traumatic. First point. Second point, even if that old place that's raw um, is coming up, if you're bringing to mind some positive experience, it's going to be soothing to some degree. But generally speaking, if the old place of pain is bigger than the positive, drop the negative. I don't mean negative like it's bad, I just mean skillfully. We don't want to stitch neurons that fire together, wire together. You know, why would I do one more lap in hell? You know, so if that old, th- that, that old pain 
starts hijacking you, drop it like a hot potato. What can work that's quite skillful, and this has a lot, you know, I do it, I teach therapists a day on taking in the good. I've done it a fair amount. And, you know, there's a lot of details about this I don't want to get into here, but it naturally arises this question, gee, how can we use this with trauma? Because it's a natural question. And um, I think it's very important, first of all, do no harm. Take your time, you know. With, with material that's really raw, sometimes what's best to do is not do the, the fourth step, but just do the first three of just internalizing gen- general purpose, non-specific, soothing, nourishing, happy-making, gratitude-inducing, um, you know, taking the fruit as the path in a variety of non-specific ways, right? Uh, be glad, um, rec- you know, cool the fires generally, uh, you know, just work on loving kindness in general. Self-compassion. Self-compassion is great, right? And then go back on the, on, and, and one more little detail. And when working with stuff that's, that's particularly raw or painful or traumatic, I find it's helpful to work around the margins first. So maybe there's some aspect of the event that wasn't really just like a stick in your eye. Sorry for the mem- image there. Uh, but it's more like, you know, a tap on the head or something. Well, you work on that part first, and then you get closer to the original event. I think that, um, I think it's just leftover negativity, and, and yet, and yet um, the original event, there's nothing that's ever been uh, on the other side of positive, really, or I've not been able to open to anything that was as big as the original negative event. So it's never been a, there's never been something wonderfully I've never consistently been able to stay with the small wonderful things. I think that I get it and although I'm learning yeah rapidly. That's good. Yeah, thank you for that. You know there's a, I think it's an Irish saying every day wounds and the last one kills. <laughs> so uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, life is full of dukkha, suffering, right? Both first-art suffering that's unavoidable and second-art suffering that, in a sense, we cause ourselves. But life's full of dukkha, um, first noble truth. And I think we have these painful life experiences. And oftentimes what we, like the dogs who learn helplessness, we don't even, we just adapt to them the brain, it's like a tree growing around a rock. We just take the shape around that painful event and we take it for granted, like, oh, this is what trees are like or because we don't live inside the heads of others. But actually, our life is contracted as a result. That's why I think going back after painful experiences and, you know, and, and difficulties and really focusing on positive resources in a, in a genuine way, authentic way, good facts. It's always about facts. That's, that's a good way to be kind to ourselves. Maybe one more question? Two more. You too. How about there? And then we'll finish with a practice and end in a few minutes. I have a little trouble with the, the exercise. Yeah. And uh, so a couple couple issues. One, I guess in thinking of one of the events as while working on it, it seemed to track back to a previous event. Yeah. Yeah, not unsurprisingly, that's why you're, this is a practice here. On the other so yes, um, 
and again, if that, if you get sucked into the painful event or even an even more painful earlier similar version, right, then you have to drop it, stabilize yourself in the positive state, and in a way almost just kind of keep the other one at bay or even just sort of know somehow without even dwelling on it that this positive experience is going down into and you know those places so stick with the original as opposed to going back to a previous causative oh if a previous positive causative oh yeah exactly well sometimes what happens you're right like for example just using myself i might think about being picked last, you know, for sports teams as a boy, right? Very bad for self-worth as a kid in fourth grade. Um, so, okay. And then I'm, let's say I'm taking in the good. And then what comes up somehow is my sense of my, my dad being very disengaged and busy and my mom being kind of depressed. That's earlier. It's deeper. You know, I can just access the very young feelings, even now, right now, sitting in front of you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, first phase, mindful awareness. Okay, so now I'm, I'm step. This is where nimbleness and dexterity comes in. I step out of the third phase of, of replacing. I'm no longer taking in the good. I've, like, fallen through the rabbit hole of Alice in Wonderland. I'm like, whoa, this is really little, little Ricky, you know? There I am. So I do first phase a bit. And then it depends on what the intention is. But if my intent is to heal that, then I'm... I'm directing this supply to that even younger version of me. And maybe I'm altering it. At that point, maybe what I'm doing, if I'm doing this practice, is I'm, I'm, I'm shifting from, for example, being included in sports teams, because I'm actually fairly athletic. I was just real young in school. And so I, I'm moving from being a star, touch football, quarterback, athlete, da-da, you know, which is working on that pain of being picked last. I'm moving then, because now I'm dealing with a deeper, earlier issue, let's say, of not being um, really attuned to very well or empathized with very well in my family structure, then I'm going there to more, then I'm taking in maybe different things, different antidotes that are deeper and more pointed. Maybe like feeling deeply cared for by my best friend, a guy, uh, deeply understood by him and cared about. And that's then going down there. Or my wife's caring. Or... Uh, reconciliations, rapprochements with my own parents, you know, including before my mom died. You you, you see the nimbleness of it? And and again, I'm just, I think we do a lot of these things, but it's useful to just see the schematic of it, you know, and appreciate the different steps. In in conjunction with that and following through and trying to recreate the good or uh, a new situation to then focus on, is it like NLP or uh, Ericksonian kind of reformatting that you're talking about, or is it something different? The way I see it is that um, what we're doing is what the, what the brain does routinely anyway, but we're just uh, accelerating the natural process in a context in which we're very aware of the negativity bias. Right? We respect that bias. We go, whoa, this deck is stacked against me. I've got to really activate to be on my own side, okay? And so what I think there is happening is that it's the slow sifting in of brick by brick into the heart. It's, we're not, there, there's a place here for retelling the story, and that sometimes happens too. Sometimes when we start taking in pos- positive experiences here and now, 
we realize something, including that was then. I was real young. No wonder they didn't pick me. I would have picked me last. I sucked at baseball. You know, I would never want that fourth grade Rick Hansen on his team unless I had to have him. You know what I mean? You see it in a different way. I mean, the insights and different kinds come in and so forth. We're just realizing. For me, it was a breakthrough to realize, whoa, my mom was depressed. That just suddenly became less personal. So then that's a reframe. Okay, there's, there's places for that. I think the fourth step is actually quite generative of insight, too. But the larger point is to appreciate, uh, I, th- I think, the fact that it's okay to work through these phases, mindfulness, releasing, and replacing, and to have a general quality of sort of initiative and self-advocacy or loyalty to ourselves, as well as a certain nimbleness with our own mind. You know, that itself has an implicit message to ourselves. You know, it says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be defeated here. I'm going to keep at this. I mean, that's the whole thing. And if we could finish with a little practice for about one minute or so, one or two minutes, I think that would be relevant here. So here now, think about some of the classic antidote experiences in the Dharma. All right? And you could do it maybe structurally from uh, these um, three systems. For one, in terms of, I ordered it this way, the approach system, um, you know, being lived by your best intentions. I think sometimes that what, the, what will really is, is being given over to our best self, okay, under the approach system. Or you might think about, in terms of the Dharma, cooling. The Buddha used so many metaphors that have to do with cooling, Right? Nibbana ultimately is quenched, like a fire is quenched. You know, people literally in Pali will nibbana the rice, they'll, they'll nirvana the rice, they'll take it off the heat, the stove. They're cooling it, right? Or, in terms of the last one, you know, a sense of loving kindness that's all pervading uh, without bound or limitation. So bring to mind for yourself a particular antidote experience in the Dharma that's meaningful to you. Perhaps one of the ones I just mentioned. And then doing the first three steps, getting in touch with it, and then really letting it sink into you. Whatever this experience might be. It could be gratitude, maybe it's a sense of cooling and calming, tranquilizing, or maybe a sense of kindness and open-heartedness, whatever it is. Get into your Dharma experience. Really sink into it as it sinks into you. And then, in the fourth step, sense and intend that this positive dharma experience is sinking down into suffering inside you. Suffering in general. 
and that this Dharma experience is helping to relieve your suffering. I hope today has relieved your suffering in some way. And it's relieved mine in some ways. Thank you very much. You're really beautiful, very attentive. Really appreciate it. May you be well. And may our sincere practice today really help free ourselves and others from suffering and its causes.